Good morning. It's Pastor Randy here with Made Free Church. How you guys doing? <clears throat> wow, what an amazing morning, man. You know, uh, you know, prayer is is very essential to everybody's Christian walk and and church is essential. You know, don't let anybody ever tell you that it's not because it is. It's very, very, very essential. So we're going to continue our study here in, you know, uh, the book of Mark. There's so much meat here. Um, and we're just going to continue. We're going to be in Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 30 today. Um, and uh, we're going we're gonna to see it's like, who is Jesus, right? Two opinions, but only one truth, right? So before we even get started, man, you know what I mean? Uh, guys, if you guys need prayer and you guys want prayer, please go to madefreechurch.org. We're a praying church. We have a full intercessory prayer team that uh prays over your prayer requests every day um and uh you know so yeah you know if you guys need prayer if you guys want some of one of us to give you a call please leave your phone number and we will call you and pray with you well let's uh, get into some prayer let's get into this study guys uh with your comments you give uh Streamyard access to your name that way when you post a comment i can actually see who uh who is actually posting if not, then I'm just going to go ahead and just kind of disregard it and just kind of comment on it. I'll be switching from screen to screen uh, for my notes and to back here to the stream. Yesterday, we had a little bit of a hiccup, I guess, because of the Internet and stuff like that. So um, I'll be switching back and forth uh, to look at the stream. So, um, guys, let's get into it. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for this time, Lord. We just thank you that we have the ability to get online and just preach your word, God. We love you, we worship you, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, open your words to uh, Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 30. And it says this, you know, uh, give you a little bit of summary of what's going on here. It's Jesus' family thought he was insane, and the scribes thought he was demon-possessed. This led to Jesus' teaching on the unforgivable sin. So Mark 20 through, well, I'm going to go through 235 on this, but, and it says, and the multitude uh, came together again, and they could not uh, so much as eat bread. And when his friends heard of it, they went and laid a hold of him, and, they, and he, he said he was beside himself. And the scribes which came down from Jerusalem said he had Beelzebub, by the prince of the devils, he cast out demons, and he called them uh, unto him and said, uh, said unto them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? And the kingdom, and, and if the kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. And if the house is divided against itself, the house cannot stand. And if Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand. And hath the end. No man can enter a strong man's house and spoil his good, except he will first bind the strong man, and he will spoil his house. Verily I say unto you, all the sin, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemy, whereassoever they shall blaspheme. But he shall, uh, but he, he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness but is in danger of the external damnation. Because they said he hath an unclean spirit, there came uh, then his brethren and his mother standing, standing without 
is sent unto him, calling him. And the uh, multitudes sat about him, and they said to him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren with, uh, without seek for thee. And he answered them, saying, Who is my brother and who is my, bre- who is my mother and who is my brethren? And he looked around uh, on them which sat about him, and he said, Behold, my mother and my brethren. For whoever shall do the will of God, the same is my brother, my sister, and my mother. A few months ago, some guy about my age, you know, walked up and he said, Hey man, it's been a long time. How are you? And I'm thinking, who is this guy? I mean, I usually remember faces and stuff like that, but I drew a blank on him. You know, I meet, sometimes I meet so many people um, that I forget a few, but he knew me. So I figured, well, he mu- I, I must know him. So, you know, I updated him on what was going on. And then he stopped me. He goes, wait. You're a pastor of a church? I said, yes. He's all, is your name Dave? I said, no, man, it's Randy. And suddenly he broke out you know, and uh, laughing and he said, sorry, man, I thought you were my old drinking buddy Dave. And, but I thought your voice sounded a little different. So uh, then I broke out laughing. We, 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 we broke, you know, different ways. Right? So it was a, a, a case of a mistaken identity. In our text, there are two groups of people that knew Jesus' name, but they did not know his, his identity. So, a proper identification of Jesus is necessary because who you think he is has eternal consequences. Let's look at, let's, 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 let's look at our story of these two cases of false identification of Jesus and how Jesus handled it. The opinion of Jesus' family was that he was insane. In verse 20 and 21, it says, And he crowd together and, and gathered again so that, so that they, could, they could not even eat. And when his own people heard it, they went out to seize him, for they said, He is out of his mind. When Jesus returned home to Galilee, probably to Peter's house, the crowds gather as usual, and as you know, Jesus and his disciples were so busy they couldn't even find time to eat. Verse two says that when his own people heard of it, <clears throat> they went out to seize him. The word translation into his own people was a Greek idiom for uh, kinsmen or family. The term "seize" is regularly used by Mark in a sense of tempting to bind someone or deprive them of freedom, which is the sense here. Uh, the reason they went out to do this is because they said he is out of his mind. How could his own flesh and blood think Jesus it was crazy and be willing to humiliate him by forcibly seizing him and dragging him out back uh, and bound back to Nazareth? For one thing, they thought that he was re- his religious fervor would ruin his health and future. The text itself says that Jesus was so busy ministering to people uh, people's needs that he couldn't even find time to eat in the culture where food was scarce this was considered insane the danger of uh, the press of the crowds might have been a factor too and earlier in chapter 3 the crowds were so large and unruly that Jesus told his disciples to uh, have a boat handy in case they needed to make a hasty escape maybe his family feared his physical safety as well Also, it must have seemed crazy for Jesus to give up a thriving carpenter business, which 
met his needs to set himself against powers that be to gather the motley group of disciples around him. You know, his family was probably motivated by love, they thought correctly, that the path that he had taken would get him killed. I think also they probably thought his religious zeal was too, a bit too extreme. It's okay to be devoted to God and carry out religious duty, but to take such a radical path would was not to them the actions of a to them that wasn't the action of a sane person also they did not understand the mission of jesus life we're told in john John 7 5 that despite seeing jesus works in galilee jesus own brothers did not believe him it wasn't until his death that some of jesus brothers believed and two james and jude went on to write uh, the, uh, to uh, write New Testament books, but in our text today, they had not yet believed, and they they must have thought that Jesus had become some kind of self destructive megalomaniac. So, out of love, they, they 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 sought to save him from himself before the religious leaders or even the Roman authorities, you know, had him killed. Jesus's family is not the only ones who believe Jesus was some kind of deluded lunatic. Many today see Jesus as a good man, but somewhat mentally imbalanced. Philosopher uh, Albert Weitzer in the early 20th century was the first to articulate the idea that Jesus had a, mess, uh, a messianic delusion of himself. Schweitzer's thesis was that Jesus thought he could change the world only to have the world destroy him. He was, according to Schweitzer, a good man, a noble man, but ultimately a deluded fool. That has been what many non-believers have thought of through those who have followed Christ down through the centuries. Paul describes, uh, Paul preached to Festus, and Festus cried out with a, a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Your great learning is, is driving you mad. People who follow Jesus with zeal and self-sacrifice are viewed that same way today. Jim Elliott, a genius at business, had prospects of great business opportunities when he graduated from uh, the university. From, uh, from a university, he he chose instead to give up everything to become a missionary to unreach the Indian tribe of Indians in in Ocas with the gospel of Jesus Christ. People thought he and his four missionary companions and their families with them were crazy to give up all the modern conveniences in the early 1950s to go to a remote part in the Amazon jungles where the Alkius lived. But in one of his journal entries, Elliot wrote, He is no fool who gives, gives what he cannot keep to gain which he cannot lose. And on January 8th, 1956, Elliot and his four missionary companions were murdered by those same Indians. This kind of devotion to Christ is mystifying to non-believers. The view is, is it as foolhardy at best, insane at worst. But the reality is, as Kent Hughes puts it, if Christ is who he says he is, then the sanest thing in the world is to follow him. If Christ calls us to total commitment, anything else is crazy. Christianity means more Christ madness. The second case of mistaken identity of Jesus was from the scribes who thought that he was a double agent in league with, 
with the devil. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebub, the prince of the demons. He cast out demons. See, the scribes were highly trained religious legal experts of their day. Part of their job is to examine people who claim to be, you know, miracle workers and determine if they were, you know, mere charlatans, sorcerers, or following the black arts or, or, or genuine prophets of God. These scri the scribes' mind apparently were, all, were already made up. None of the Gospels mention any interviews with Jesus and his, or his disciples. They came with a closed mind and closed heart. They basically made two charges. First, they claimed that he was possessed by Beelzebub. Beelzebub was a Philistine god who was variously known as the Lord of the Flies or the God of Filth. As hard as it is to believe for us today, they actually worshipped a god of flies that swarmed around filthy, decaying things. By the New Testament times, Beelzebub also became to be thought of as the prince over a large division of Satan's demons. The scribes could not have conceived of a greater insult to Jesus. It was foul and wicked thing to say and was something they came that came from their very foul, wicked hearts. Second, the charge that said they, they charged that Jesus came out, cast out demons by the power of, of this evil prince. This would have reduced Jesus to a demon possessed sorcerer who babbled in the black heart, who dabbled in the black arts. The scribes could not deny that Jesus performed bona fide exorcisms, yet they would not accept his power of being from God. Jesus had to be an agent of Satan masquerading as a man of God, masquerading as a man of God. This made Jesus out to be an extraordinary, wicked, and corrupt tool of Satan. All right. As insulting as these charges were, Jesus never lost his cool. He answered his enemies with a maddening calmness and an impeccable logic, reread in verse 23. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? Then he pointed out, and then he went to point out the craziness of their allegations. In verse 24, he gave an illustration from the secular world. If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. No worse disaster can befall a country than before uh, it to be rent by, 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 by civil war. Even when the war ends, old resentments smolder for years, even centuries. In all the while, the nation's weakened condition invites interference from foreign powers. In verse 25, Jesus gave an illustration from the social world. If a house is divided against itself, the house cannot stand. Think of a, a think of the, the harm done to children in homes torn by strife. What hope do parents have of support in their old age from hateful kids? What kind of family support and solidarity can you have if the siblings are divided against one another? Such families descend into chaos. The Bible gives several illustrations of this fact. For example, 
the situations in Joe, in Jacob's family and in David's family show what happens when families are divided. By contrast, the pagan world soon learned that an attack on Lot was also an attack on Abraham because ties were strong in Abraham's family. In verse 26, when Jesus concludes uh, of the scribe's accusation. If Satan has rised up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand, but his end has come. He was pointing out that if his work was diametrically opposed to Satan, how could he be empowered by Satan? See, it didn't make any sense. What if the scribes were saying were true? then Satan was clearly working at the cross purpose with himself, which would only lead to his fall. It's impossibly illogical, right? So in verse 27, Jesus told one verse of the parable that revealed his true identity. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder the good unless he first binds the strong man and then can plunder his house. To understand what Jesus is saying, let's dig into this short parable. Satan is the strong man in the parable. His house is the kingdom which he rules here on earth. His possessions are lost without Christ under the power of the influence of Satan and his demonic forces. See, in Ephesians 2, 1 verses 1 to 2, describes people without Christ this way. And you, who were dead in your in trespasses and in sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the prince that is now at work in the children of disobedience. See, Paul is saying that uh, it Satan is at work in the lives of people who don't know Christ. Now, if you would have told an unbeliever that they were under the control of Satan, they would laugh at you and they'd probably say, you're crazy, man. I don't believe in Satan. But Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, whose minds the God of this world has blinded. Do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Even, the, even for people who don't believe God, or even if the devil really exists, Satan can actively keep their minds blinded to the truth about Jesus. They are slaves to Satan without even knowing it. There are species of ants in the Amazon in, in, in Amazon area in South America called the slave-making ant. Hundreds of these ants periodically swarm out of their nests and attack, uh, attack colonies of weaker ants. After destroying the living ants, they carry back the larvae of the unhatched ants. And when the young ants are hatched, they are forced to be slave ants. These worker ants are born into thinking they belong to the colony, never realizing they were forced to be slaves from the time they were born. That's the picture of humanity without realizing it. We were born in the slavery of sin and Satan. We need someone stronger than Satan to come and rescue and reclaim us from the strong man. And this is, this is what Jesus did. He entered Satan's house. He bound him. He loosed the captive souls. Jesus identifying himself as the stronger man who was already defeating Satan in his earthly ministry and would deliver his final blow at the cross and at the tomb for three days later and uh, at the tomb three days later. 
the final doom of Satan and his demons will come when God casts them into the lake of fire forever. Jesus' appeal to the logic is, is in, in answer to the scribes' accusation must have left them speechless. But Jesus was, was not speechless. He followed this parable with the frightening warning to the scribes in verse 28 through 30. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, uh, the sons of men, but whatever blasphemy means they utter. But he who blasphemy against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of eternal sin, because they said he has an unclean spirit. Very few scriptures are more consistently misunderstood and misapplied than this passage. Nearly everyone has heard of the unforgivable sin. And I, I even had someone tell me they even committed it. So what is the unforgivable sin? Well, let's consider what it's not, right? It's not cursing out the Holy Spirit. It's not taking the Lord's name in vain, though that is a wicked sin. It's not adultery or sexual perversion or murder or even genocide. Let me calm your mind by telling you that if you are worried that you've committed uh, the unforgivable sin, you haven't. For someone who has uh, was not feared, uh, fear it can care about it. So, if these are not if if these are not the unforgivable, what is it? Taking the taking into context into consideration, most Bible teachers agree with. Kent Hughes' definition of the unforgivable sin. It, very simply, it's the... Uh, what's up, Happy? Oh. <laughs> Happy's here. <clears throat> very simply, it's the ongoing, continual rejection of the witness of the Holy Spirit to the divinity and saviorhood of Christ. It is the perversion in the heart which chooses to call light darkness and darkness light. It's the continuing rejection of the witness of the Holy Spirit whether that witness be quiet witness uh, in conscience, the rational witness of the word, even miracles and wonders. The scribes uh, here were, were at the very brink of committing the sin because they were saying that the Holy Spirit's witness to Christ uh, through his uh, exorcism and miracles and in the holy preaching or unparalleled teaching were really the work of Satan. Not only that, that they were persisting in the blasphemy for the uh, for the tense of the verse twenty uh, verse twenty two that indicates they kept repeatedly saying it. The attitude had become per, uh, permanent. They would have crossed the line and committed the unforgivable sin. Mark has showcased the two illogical opinions regarding the Christ, uh, Christ in today's text. First. The most charitable was that he was out of his mind and he was insane. That was uh, the view of the people who had appreciated and loved him, who knew his miracles and his impeccable life. They did not believe that he was this, that he was God. And many people believed that this idea that Jesus was a good man, a great teacher, but he was only that, a man. Thus, they were deceived. The second and the least charitable opinion it was that he was a double agent of Satan, possessed by Belzebub to cast out demons by the prince of demons. They attributed the work of the Holy Spirit that the life of Christ as satanic in origin. If they continued in the hostility, they would have committed the unforgivable sin. So, these two opinions of Jesus present us with an often referred to the great trilemma. 
Either Jesus was a lunatic or a demonic liar, or he was God. Regarding his, his being a liar, Philip Scalf, and, uh, uh, wrote, he was a church historian, wrote this. The hypothesis uh, of imposture is so revolting to moral as well as common sense that it is mere statement. It is condemnation. How the name of logic, common sense, and experience could imposter that is deceitful, selfish, and depraved man have invented and constantly maintained from the beginning to the end the purest and noblest character known in history with the most perfect air of truth and reality. How could he have conceived and successful carried out a plan of unparable benefits, moral magnitude, and sublimity, and, sacred, and, and sacrificed his own life for it in the face of the strongest prejudice of his own people? As Jesus' uh, sanity, we must realize that the difficulty of explaining his life, if he was a madman, has never been overcome. The incontingency uh, of the immense insanity of his moral teaching and massive magnomania, which is charged, cannot be, it cannot be satisfactorily reconciled. There is only one logical opinion that Jesus was God. C.S. Lewis put it like this. I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really silly thing that people often say about him. I am ready to accept Jesus as the as a great moral teacher, but I do not accept his claim to, to be God. In the mere Christianity. That's the one thing we mustn't say. A man who is was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would be a great moral teacher. He either be a lunatic on the level with man who says he is a poached egg or else he be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else he's a madman or something worse. You can't shut up a fool or uh, you can't spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But don't let us come with the patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He hasn't left that open to us. He didn't attend to. There's no logical uh, choice but to accept Jesus Christ as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I mean, it's the most sane thing in the world to trust him and commit your life to him. In the light of his extraordinary claims, his matchless teaching, his impeccable life, his work on Calvary to die for you, you and I's sins, his incredible resurrection, and many wonderful promises, any other life one committed to Jesus is insanity. No wonder why Paul says in Romans 12, 1, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. The supremely sane life is one that's totally committed to Jesus. And I invite you to do that today. We got Pastor Happy here today, which is kind of a, a, a which is really, really cool. I Howdy. Love, love Pastor Happy. Um, you know what I mean? Pastor Happy comes in and drinks my coffee and smokes and stuff. And it's just great just that he's here, man. And and we love him to death. So, guys, I'm going to end this so I can spend some time with my pastor. Um, and uh, I hope you guys enjoy this. We're going to continue. Tomorrow morning, I'm going to be on at 7. So, guys, be there. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for this time, Lord. We just ask that you just bless this day. We love you, we worship you, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys, have a great day.